Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. Today, we're exploring the volume to value transition of moving from fee-for-service care to value-based care. In 2018, America's healthcare spending grew by 4.6% for a total of $3.6 trillion, more than $11,000 per capita. That's nearly 20% of our GDP. For reference, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, found that similarly sized and wealthy countries spend only about half as much. And add to the fact that, on the whole, that money isn't necessarily buying us better health outcomes. Among those comparable countries, we have the lowest life expectancy, highest chronic disease burden, highest number of hospitalizations from preventable causes, and the highest rate of avoidable deaths. So why is this? Dr. Irene Papanicholas, a healthcare economist with the London School of Economics and Harvard University, noted that this is due in part to administrative complexity, in part to a lack of price transparency, and also, as she put it, a reliance on fee-for-service reimbursement. Value-based care aims to reverse this trend by aligning costs with outcomes, in essence, rewarding providers for improving health outcomes through preventive, evidence-based medicine that lowers overall healthcare spending. In this episode, I'll talk with Rick Forster, Senior Vice President of Value-Based Operations at Privia Health, and Sam Starbuck, Vice President of Privia Quality Network, our high-performance accountable care organization. We'll discuss the hurdles providers face in transitioning to value-based care, ways in which specialty and primary care providers can align to improve outcomes, and tips to avoid common mistakes providers make when shifting to value-based care. All right, let's start the show. Thank you, Rick and Sam, for coming on the podcast today. I want to start out by asking if you could just please define what fee-for-service and value-based care mean. Certainly, Morgan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Fee-for-service, value-based care are two very commonly used terms in today's healthcare environment. Uh, When we say fee-for-service, we're referring to getting paid for delivering a service. So think about this every time you go to the doctor's office and you you see the doctor for 15 minutes that doctor gets a set fee for providing you that 15-minute service. When we talk about value-based care, you know, that is less dependent on solely providing a service. In fact, sometimes it's about keeping patients from, you know, needing or receiving unnecessary services that would have been paid for. And so it's about making sure that we are uh, delivering the right value to the patients uh, and to the healthcare system uh, at the right time and in the right place and and getting paid for creating that value as opposed to just for delivering a service. So the idea of value-based care is you give the ensuring that patients have what they need and you instead get paid for the outcomes that you create. And so you get paid for reducing the total cost of care, ensuring that patients have the certain preventive and quality um, services that they need to maintain a healthy and active lifestyle and instead get away from the idea of requiring patients to come and see you and receive a service in order for you to get paid. The only thing I'll add there is, you know, Sam was right on, and in a fee-for-service system, you know, really groups are rewarded for uh, having sicker patients. The, The sicker your patients, the more care they need, the more care they get, the better you do. And that might be appropriate, but the incentives are sort of perverse. Whereas in value-based care, 
like Sam said, it's aligned to patient value. And usually the three main subcomponents of that are higher quality care, as demonstrated by better outcomes or better process, lower cost care, not necessarily with the provider themselves, but them, th them able to generate lower costs of care uh, in its entirety for the patient, and then a better experience or, or the patient's satisfaction with that provider or, or set of caregivers. So it's, it's really aligning the model of payment to those patient outcomes. Excellent, Rick. You know, I think the what you said there about the three components of value-based care kind of ties perfectly into the next question, which is how is value-based care better for providers, for patients, and for the healthcare industry in general? Well, I think you have to look at what is our current system getting us uh, in the United States and, and probably globally. And that picture doesn't look really good. In the United States, we have by far the highest cost of care per capita in the world. Uh, we do very poorly on almost all quality measures compared to other developed countries. And most providers are unhappy with uh, you know, the system. They're leaving it in droves. They're not recommending it to their children as careers. And being a patient in the United States is a, is a terrible experience. I think we all can identify with a personal experience or somebody in our family having to sift through the complexity of how to find care, how to pay for care, and just how to navigate an incredibly convoluted system. So I think the, the system we're working with is you know really not aligned towards the patient value, whereas value-based care really moves things to say, you know, not how we orient the system towards driving more care, more complexity, but really how do we align that to what patients care about, that quality cost or experience. And so I think, you know, Sam and I and others are very hopeful that this shift in reimbursement system can really change the trajectory of the healthcare system in America and elsewhere uh, so that we can improve on those really fundamental outcomes uh, as a system. Yeah, and, and Morgan, the only other thing I'd add on to that is from a provider perspective specifically, you know, you think about in today's environment, it's heavily fee-for-service. You know, I, as a physician who own my own practice, own my own business, am reliant on people coming into my office and enabling me to keep my doors open, as opposed to me asking the question, is it truly right for me to bring a patient into the office? You know, today we're doing this interview over, you know, the phone, um, given the current situation with coronavirus. And you think about, we don't want patients coming into the office, you know, sick nor healthy, right? We want the folks to stay at home where they're safe. And, you know, in the fee-for-service world and outside of virtual visits, that means doctors aren't getting paid. That means their businesses are at risk. Whereas in the value-based world where you're paid to do what's right for the patient and do, you know, ensure that that patient is creating the best outcome, you start to answer those questions in a much different way. And physicians are able to think about their business and the way in which they deliver medicine, much like the way that they, they dreamt about it when they went to med school, right? And, uh, and so that's, that's another key benefit to it assuming that you get far enough along in the value-based care world where you're able to achieve that level of value and reward. Yeah, thank you both. That's just such an interesting perspective. Um, you know, I read a study uh, earlier this year that the healthcare industry spends $812 billion 
on administrative work. So Rick, to your point on the incredible complexity of the system and Sam, to your point on trying to focus less on the, like I said, the, the administrative work and more on the medical outcomes that doctors actually went to medical school for, value-based care has a tremendous amount of opportunity and promise there. So that kind of forces the question, you know, health uh, value-based care has been such a hot topic for so many years now. Why is it that it has taken so long to catch on? That's a loaded question, Morgan. There's many ways that you can answer this. The way I'll answer it is that I think it, it has been a topic for a while, and there are areas of the country where it is further along than others. And um, you, know, you certainly look at, even within it, certain areas of the country, there are groups within that area that are further along than others. And it's largely about a couple things. You know, first, it's about finding an aligned partner, whether that be you know, a payer or an employer who is willing to, to go along this journey with you. And largely, it's, it's those who fund healthcare, right? And you have to have someone who is paying for the, the healthcare services for a population to be aligned on this vision. And once you have that, then it's just a matter of risk tolerance and a pathway to getting there. And there are some organizations in some areas of the country that uh, has been accelerated, whether it's through local legislation or whether it's through uh, just market dynamics. And there are others where incentives have not aligned that way. And um, you know, I think about where I sit today in, in the uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, where it's still largely fee-for-service incentive has not pushed folks further towards the, the value end of the spectrum. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors at play. Certainly CMS and, and the federal government is uh, a driving force behind this and will continue to be as the largest payer in our, in our system. But, you know, it also requires a lot of those within the healthcare ecosystem who have vested interest in the, the continuum not moving to the the value end of the spectrum, uh, you know, they're constantly fighting back and, and keeping that from happening. So probably summed up to say you've got vested interest, you've got you know policy and legislation, but then you just also have market dynamics, and, and some markets are more tolerable or more willing to think outside the box and creatively than others. Yeah, I would say the value-based care space, there has been a lot of interest, enthusiasm, and hope for the model. And Sam and I and others go out and talk to providers and practices every day. And I think the why of value-based care really resonates with people on the front lines and people in healthcare today genuinely want this to happen. At the same time, you do have these strong counteracting forces really pushing against it. Sam mentioned several there, and there really is no one silver bullet. The other angle I might put on it is to picture yourself in an existing practice or as an existing provider. There are a couple obstacles at play. One is you've got a change in business model. And the existing business model of fee-for-service is very clear, it's strong, it's ingrained in how you run your practice and run your business. Whereas this new business model is not quite obvious, sometimes the activity to the reward is delayed, there's more risk involved. So it's, it's a harder business model and you've got to change the way you run your business. You've also got to invest in new capabilities and new people and new workflows which is very hard to do when you are a potentially cash-strapped uh, small business 
that is already burnt out today and overworked. It's very difficult to live in that moment and be able to change direction. And then I think the sort of combined with all of this is just change is hard. You know, there's this saying, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I do think even though value-based care has a lot of hope and potential, and, you know, we believe it is where the industry needs to go, to make that switch from one model to the other takes time, and it's, it's hard work, and it's not easy. And so a lot of folks who are not necessarily the early adopters or jumping right in um, from the start are a little bit hesitant and, and maybe taking a watch and see uh, approach to how are other groups going to figure this out. But I do think there are so many factors involved here, and you've really got to think about all of them in order to change the direction of an organization. So, Rick, to your point that change is, you know, almost by definition difficult, especially for providers. Where can a provider who is not yet involved in value-based care, where can they get started? It's a really uh, good question, an important question, I think, for providers to, to think through. I think the short answer is start in the most obvious place you can. <laughs> and that might come from looking at your patient base today to say, what is your payer mix? What does it look like from a commercial versus Medicare or Medicare Advantage or Medicaid uh, perspective? Because all of those have a little bit of a different angle on value-based care. But if you're focused on where your patients are today or your most sizable groups, you can potentially provide significant value to the organization versus focus on a niche that might not be as relevant or, or make up a big part of the practice. And so, you know, I think you start there to look at your patient base and what are the existing models out there that might work. And Sam mentioned this before, but you try and find a like-minded payer partner that can help to design and implement a value-based care program in whatever stream that might be. So if, it, if you've got a huge base of traditional Medicare patients, you'd want to look at the Medicare Shared Savings Program as your first entrant. Or if you've got a lot of Medicare Advantage patients, there are a lot of different payers out there who can design a program for you. And so I think once you look at your patients, find a payer partner, you can then take the steps on the value-based care journey. And there are a lot of visuals for this, but picture stair steps from, you know, low risk, uh, low value to higher risk, higher value. And so you might start with something called a pay for performance program where the payer rewards specific activities that the group has to do, such as closing quality gaps. And then you might progress to a shared savings arrangement where you've got a target for total cost of care. Maybe it's an upside only arrangement so you aren't taking on risk. And then all the way to taking on full global risk uh, where you've got some upside downside. And so I think if you can take those steps and uh, try and do them not all at once, uh, not across every payer, not across every type of program possible, not jumping to too much risk at first, you can create some momentum inside the organization around this effort and increasingly sort of per push the curve as you go. Yeah, Morgan, the only other thing I'd add on to that, you know, Rick summarized very well the starting point. 
think in, in going outside and finding you know the right program to create and, and start but when you look inside and you know perhaps you are in that program the first thing you should do before you start to really pursue value is make sure you're already standing on a solid foundation you know you can't jump into something that is going to take a while to grow that's new that has changed without knowing that you already have a solid base on which you stand and so you know within a practice or within a group ensuring that the fundamentals of that practice and the operations are smooth workflows are efficient and then you start to layer on top of an already efficient business model and an efficient operation things that are new and are going to be capitalized on within the value-based care space so you know simple example is appointment scheduling you know you think about do we already have an, you know, processes within the office that are very efficient, but then that we add on to that, that, you know, certain uh, protocol that are geared towards value. So think about things around the management of diabetic patients and ensuring that, you know, they have a certain scheduling kind of expectations to manage their certain quality metrics and conditions. So, you know, you've got to not only look outside, but also think about inside within my practice and within my business. How do I ensure that I am working up that stair step and implementing the right programs, processes, and workflows to be successful in these contracts? Absolutely. Um, you know, it truly is a team effort in succeeding in these programs and in just taking on and, and improving the healthcare industry as a whole. So I want to bring up something Related to the mention that a lot of times value-based care is primary focus and for a specialty, it's more bundling focus. What are some ways that primary care providers and specialty providers can kind of link arms to, you know, advance value-based care, improve patient outcomes? Morgan, there are honestly many ways. I think it, a lot of it, it comes down to, you know, what type of contract do you have? And how far are you along on the risk spectrum? I keep going back to, you know, Rick's example around the basic starting point in value-based care is pay for performance. And typically in pay for performance contracts, those are things where, you know, the specialists don't necessarily support, you know, your success. And I will say like strongly, right? Of course, if you have a diabetic, an endocrinologist can help manage that patient's A1C if A1C is a metric that you're going to be paid on. But generally speaking, and that those early stage deals within value-based care, they're, you try to orient them around the core competencies of you know, the, the primary care physician if it's a primary care-based arrangement. But as you get further and further along and you start to take on more risk and you start to talk about managing the total cost of care, you have to broaden that lens and that scope by which you view the healthcare landscape, right? Ultimately, your goal is to ensure that a patient has access to the necessary high quality care that they need to maintain the best health, right? And for patients who are managing multiple chronic conditions, that most likely means that they are actively engaged and they have a specialist actively engaged in their care. Sticking with the, the, the diabetic example or perhaps switching over you know, to a heart condition, right? A cardiologist is likely gonna be at play. And so that cardiologist is as important as that PCP and managing that patient's care because if that cardiologist is not paying attention to the regular follow-ups that need to be seen or educating the patient on appropriate self-management of their heart condition or using low-cost imaging facilities to do EKGs and other images of the heart uh, or diagnostic tests of the heart, then, you know, at the end of the day, that's all impacting the total cost of care and creating lesser value for that patient and for the system. So, you know, I, I think 
as you get further and further along, the collaboration between the primary care and the specialty care becomes even more important because that lens by which you're viewing the healthcare world becomes wider and wider and eventually is wide open when you get to the full downside risk on the total cost of care because patients are inevitably going to need care beyond the, the, the four walls of a primary care office. Yeah, I think specialists play a pivotal role in the success uh, overall to value-based care. At the same time, I think it's important to be as objective as possible. And this can be particularly hard for uh, multi-specialty groups or, or health systems. And you hear this term leakage and groups or systems looking to avoid leakage, uh, which really means keeping patients within the system. And I think you have to be careful there where you are really objective around saying, are our providers within the group better than providers outside the group? I, I think a lot about how rigorously we analyze and work with our PCPs around managing their quality, their cost of care, their experience. We're out there every week, every month delivering data in terms of how they're performing on dozens of quality metrics and on their total cost of care across all different types of service lines. And we're working together around strategies to improve that. And I think you have to do the same thing with specialists as well. It's, it's not just because you are the referral source of the past that you will necessarily be one in the future. And so I think it's very important that groups take an objective eye to identifying, as, as Sam was saying, who are the providers or partners that are lower cost. Maybe it's not that their price is lower, but they are able to exhibit that their patients have higher quality outcomes and maybe have a lower cost of an episode over the long term, or they have a great experience and connectivity. So I think objectivity is really important when you're working in this space. So I think one thing that's very clear about value-based care is that it is a difficult transition. So what I've heard is, you know, a lot of independent providers are just intimidated by the sheer scale of the transition and all that entails, even though they would really like to be participating in value-based care. So my question to you all is, when a provider is considering, you know, partnering with an organization or building a team or network uh, to help them enter into and, and thrive in value-based care, what should they be looking for? It's a really good question. And one of the hardest parts about this shift to value-based care is really just organizing the team and the components to be able to make it work because you cannot do this alone and they're very pessimistic on just any small doctor practice being able to, to handle all of the complexity by themselves and do what they have to do on a day-to-day -day basis as well. So I think there's a couple of key components. This probably won't be a comprehensive list, but a couple that come to mind. One is you got to work with an organization, both your own organization and if you're partnering with others, that has strong leadership from the top around moving to value-based care. It's just such a significant organizational shift that you can't have people at the top of the organization sending mixed signals or deprioritizing these type of efforts. It's really got to be a full organizational change, and a lot of that comes from the top. I think you do need to have a dedicated team that is focused on population health and value-based care. This is not something that is easy to do off the side of your desk. So having a dedicated team, a leader, 
of population health, quality team, risk adjustment team, technology team that are really dedicated towards looking at these programs and, and how we can be successful and how we can serve our patients is important. And then I think the third thing that comes to mind is having the right physician or provider governance structure around the group. This is not just something that you can outsource to a vendor and hope it all works. It's really got to be a organizational shift. And to do that in amongst the provider group is to have really strong provider leaders who can set the direction, review data, understand what's going on, and help guide the organization forward. So those are some of the things that come to mind. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't have any additional pearls of wisdom to add other than, you know, I think our largest thought process in entering into value-based care, whether it's in a new market or a new level of contract is look where it's not obvious, right? I think when you talk about value-based care and creating better outcomes for patients and reducing total costs, you immediately think of things that are clinical programs and those are critically important. But if you do not have these other fundamentals that Rick just mentioned in place first, you know, core physician leaders, an organization that's aligned on the, on the vision and the future that you're going, you're moving forward too quick without the, the, the basics in place and the foundation on which to build. And so once you have those solid foundations and you have voice, clinical voices and leaders and physician leaders to continue to drive and champion that forward and to lead their peers, then those clinical programs start to become natural fit and addition into. But one would naturally think, you know, that that's where you would run first. But instead, it's the understanding of the contract, the analytics, the physician governance and leadership that are, are primary which and are less obvious when you first enter into an agreement to build as opposed to the other programs that I mentioned. Awesome. Thanks so much for your uh, for your insights on, you know, whether it's leadership or analytics, just some of the many crucial elements of helping providers adopt and do well in value-based care. So my last question for the podcast is, I know it's a difficult one because the, the industry is always shifting and evolving, but what are your short-term and long-term predictions for value-based care? Rick's going to let me go first on this one, then disagree and share the magic eight ball view. But uh, no, uh, you know, in all seriousness, I think I believe that what has happened over the last 18 months is, you know, we're kind of at a pivotal point in the transition and the journey. You know, last year, uh, CMS, it was actually almost two years ago now, but CMS announced the pathways to success in forcing organizations and ACOs to go to downside risk in, a, in an accelerated fashion. And that was a pivotal point in addition to a couple other initiatives that have come out of CMMI. And this is going to be, I, I believe, an accelerator in the marketplace for you know, a transition to value. You layer on what's, you layer what CMS is doing within, you know, their MSSP program, the things coming out of CMMI, the MIPS initiatives, which are starting to put fee-for-service rates at risk based off of certain quality or value incentives. You layer all of these things on top of one another and, you know, the writing on the wall to all those payers outside of the federal payers, you know, you start to think about commercial payers and employers, is that you know this is the direction and you know, we, we've got to start figuring this out and we're having several conversations with the commercial payers about it as well so you know, I, I don't want to overplay it but I do think we're we are at 
perhaps not a juncture. Things aren't going to take a right turn or a left turn, but I do think we're at an acceleration point in the transition to value currently. That is, we're, we're only going to see continued adoption, continued growth in the space over the next, call it five to 10 years. And I think even in the short term, it's just going to be continued adoption to that. And the longer term is we're going to have more people in the value pool, so to speak, and working to create those outcomes for patients. But that's my own, uh, that's my own <laughs> personal opinion. Yeah, I think Sam is, is, is right, and I'm not going to disagree with him uh, wholeheartedly, although I'll add a little bit of a different flavor. I think we're at, Sam, we're at a pivot point. We're through the early innings, and we're now into the messy middle of value-based care. How is this going to work? People are getting forced into adopting it, whether they like it or not. I think my only non-obvious thought or prediction when it comes to value-based care, certainly long-term, is that I don't think every group can be successful in value-based care. I think we're going to see this shift, certainly industry-wide, and, and more groups will be pushed into it. But I don't think everyone's going to be successful. I think that it's a very complex space. And, you know, some groups are ahead of the game and behind. And I think if you're not already in it in a meaningful way, you're, you're probably behind the curve. And I think you will see over time a lot of groups being even more significantly challenged as they get forced into these models and can't perform. And you'll see maybe more differential at the top of groups that are doing it really well. And so I think there's a lot of hope and interest and engagement around how value-based care can really change the industry and the system overall. But I think we have to accept that it's not going to work for everybody. And so that's my long-term prediction. We are kind of at that pivotal point. It is certainly going to be exciting to see what happens with value-based care in the weeks and months and years ahead. So thank you both. Sam and Rick for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure having you again as guests and we'd love to have you back sometime. Thanks, Thanks Morgan. Morgan. Enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoyed our discussion, please make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any new episodes. That's all for today, but we'll see you next time on The Break Room. Take care.